0: I'd like to say that my wife and I were moving a lot of dirt in our garden behind the house. It's a sizable area. In fact, some of you may remember that we held church there about two years ago uh, in the open air during the pandemic when churches were not allowed to meet indoors. It was a great time. Since then, she and I thought it would be nice to pretty up the area. For future gatherings of God's people and and other events. So we became part time landscapers. The time we devoted uh, to that, the time that we devote to that every week, involves the same kind of work digging, chopping down trees, cutting roots, yanking out stumps, and hauling dirt from one side of the yard to the other with a tractor. It is not for the faint hearted. To work out, And in addition to our regular barn chores, uh, we're really done in by the end of the day. She's smiling. So as a way to conserve as much energy as possible, we adopted a motto. That's right. And I remind my wife every time we're out there. I say, remember, honey, work smarter, not harder. Now, maybe you've heard that before. It doesn't doesn't encourage laziness by any means. No, it's about getting the job done without overextending yourself unnecessarily. Don't use your hands. Use the proper tools meant for the job. Let them do the work. Know something or a little something about about leverage. Use a, a pole as a fulcrum to move heavy objects, and so on. Now the motto helps us concentrate really on effort, our efforts on getting this big job done safely and adequately, and in a timely fashion without killing ourselves. And you may apply it really to any work-related circumstance. Uh, it, it it actually helps. It does. Now, what is a motto anyway? Well, the Oxford Online Dictionary defines it as a short sentence, even a phrase, that encapsulates. Certain beliefs or ideas that guide an individual or a family, or even an institution. That's right, institutions, lots of institutions have mottos to work by. Quinnipiac University's motto is challenging students to meet the challenges of the future. Doctors have a Hippocratic oath, do no harm. The Marine Corps' motto is semper fidelis, always faithful the Turkish Airlines just introduced their new motto, Widen Your World. The Los Angeles Police Department has had the same motto since 1970s, to protect and serve. The Firefighter Academy's motto is, We run in when everyone else runs out. Mottos can be personal as well. Many famous people have had them. Gandhi lived by we must become the change we wish to see in the world. Or Helen Keller lived by life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. And here's one that you might find in a fortune cookie. It is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And of course, not to be outdone, Japanese have their own as well. Vision without action is a daydream. Like <clears throat> most things in culture, mottos have actually undergone a change over the years. It would seem that those created since the 20th century have put a great deal of emphasis on, the, on human strength and human ability, as if to say, you have what it takes to live and, and do what you want. For example, I am enough. Or, I'm strong, I'm confident, I'm unstoppable. Or I choose to live every day of my life like it's the last of my life. The meaning of my life is what I make it. Groucho Marx said, I, not events, have the power to make me happy uh, or unhappy today and Now you should know that living by motto is very popular today. That's right. Motto gurus argue that we all actually live by Some motto, even though we might not actually claim one. And it's there, they say. And there are plenty of New Age websites to help you find yours and put it into words that you can recite to yourself when you need a nudge in the right direction. I kid you not, they range anywhere from offering you samples to choose from, the philosophies behind them, and how to create your own. LiveBoldAndBloom.com is one such website. This particular one gives New Age advice. Its tabs are relationships, personality types, and self-improvement. And as they explain... Quote, mottos can help you stay focused and be the man or woman you want to be, end quote. Now, if you survey personal mottos, you'll find that at least one common denominator of all of them, whether modern or ancient, is that they they have this positive element. I think we would expect that, right? It's a positive element, seize the day. Your pain today will be your strength tomorrow. Stuff like that. So why all this talk about mottos? Well, I'll tell you as you take your Bibles and find your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we begin examining the text this morning, and especially verses 1 and 2, which is the preamble to the book, you might say. A preamble is an introductory fact that indicates what is to follow. And the fact here is in motto form in verse 2. The ancient writer had a motto? Yes. Oh, yes. And it's bold and imaginative and one-of-a-kind motto, unlike any that you have ever encountered before, I promise. It goes like this. Futility of futilities. Futility of futilities, says the preacher, all is futility how's that for a motto i guarantee you will not see this in the in the 100 most popular mottos by famous persons on any website and i say as i say personal mottos are supposed to be positive uplifting engendering self reliance try finding a website that specializes in negative mottos for life you won't find one I checked. There's no AdamsFamilyStyleMottos.com. After all, who wants mottos like, all is hopeless, give up now, you'll never make it, go home. Why work when you can sleep? Just look the other way. No one's watching. The motto in Ecclesiastes is as unique as it is negative. Now let's dissect it before we draw some important conclusions, all right? We're in verse 2. Here's the first observation I want to make. It's it's really the word futility. We look at the word futility because it's repeated several times here. We mentioned already in our introduction that the word doesn't mean meaningless in the book, as some have suggested, some commentators, since there are many things in the book that the sage doesn't consider to be meaningless. The literal meaning of the Hebrew word is breath or vapor. So to say that everything is a breath means that everything is, well, short-lived. A breath is over in a second or less. You can observe that in, in best in weather below 40 degrees. The steam comes from your mouth as you exhale, and it forms, it forms a, a, a small cloud of vapor that's visible to the eye only for a brief second before it dissipates. Describing something as a vapor, then, means that it's transitory. It doesn't last. It's fleeting. It's here, and then it's gone psalmist uses the same word in Psalm 144, verse 4, to describe human life. He says, man is like the breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Well, you know, medical experts say that the average life expectancy in the U.S. is 79 years old. And obviously, some of you with us here today are clearly above the average in that respect. Congratulations. Well, we round that number up to 80 and, and agree. It seems like a long time to live. Someone in his teens or early 20s cannot even fathom what it's like to be that age. But age is relative. Compare, the length of, uh, uh, compare that to the length of human history or eternity. And then 80 years seems like a drop in the bucket. Oh yeah, even 100 years is a blip on the screen. Not only that, but the quality of life at 100 is nowhere near what it is in its prime, mentally and physically, right? We know that. Hairline recedes, if not disappearing altogether. The skin loses its elasticity. Eyesight and ear hearing are not what they were. The frame is bent and fragile. And a whole host of internal changes takes place And puts elderly people at risk even of walking. Now, I have some time before I fit this description. But I heard from my primary care physician last month during a routine checkup that I am in excellent shape for my age. (laughs) For my age? Well, I never used to, they never used to say that. The sobering fact is the older we get, beloved, the closer we get to dust. That's it. It's a fact of the fall. My point is living to record lengths of time may be a wonderful achievement, but not only does the quality of life consistently worsen, but long life really amounts to nothing but a vapor compared to eternity. Biblical writers call life a vapor for good reason. They understood the brevity of it in the grand scheme of things. And as we argued in our introduction last couple of weeks, the word vapor is slightly nuanced in each half of the book of Ecclesiastes. The first half of the book focuses our attention on the fact that there is no gain or profit to life under the sun. We're not really well compensated relative to the long years of work that we put into life. Where does it go? Life, work, it's all a vapor, says the sage. It produces no lasting value that you can count on. Now, the second half of the book focuses our attention on just how unmanageable and hard life is to, to grasp this, this vapor of life. Many things in life are past finding out. doesn't make sense and, and, and they're hard to get our arms around and hard to control, like destiny or our future and those unbeatable odds that slam against us now and again. We note in the second place, here's the second observation I'll make, there's a great emphasis put on the idea of futility here in verse 2. Not It's just not mentioned, and that's it. Great deal of emphasis. The phrase futility of futility is a translation of a Hebrew construction for superlatives. You remember superlatives from your high school yearbook, right? Most likely to succeed, best dressed, most athletic. Well, a superlative represents the best of something, or an absolute or extreme of something. In the context of verse 2, this ancient motto communicates to us how absolutely transitory life is. It's as fleeting as you can possibly imagine. It's not that life at times doesn't compensate us fairly with lasting gain and profit for honest work. It never does. There isn't one thing in this world that lasts forever or is reliable, forever. There are no guarantees on life. Nothing is for sure, 100% 100 certain. We also have to face facts that life is mostly out of our control. We can't determine our own destiny, contrary to popular psychology, nor are we able to comprehend the vicissitudes, you know, the endless shifts and changes of life to any satisfactory degree. In other words, this motto says that life as we know it is as transient, profitless, unknowable, uncontrollable as it possibly can be. Now, to put that in terms of a superlative, we would say life is the most transient, profitless, unknowable, and uncontrollable it can be. And if that's not strong enough, the motto has repetition built right into it for emphasis. Most languages and cultures use repetition for this purpose. So does the sage. So the superlative that presents us with a radical extreme is then further emphasized, which is kind of just kind of unbelievable, emphasizing a superlative, right? The sage says, in essence, life under the sun is the most transient, profitless, unknowable, and uncontrollable it can be. And I repeat, the most it can be. In fact, this motto occurs near the end of the book as well, creating a frame around the book. This truism creates a frame which means it's pretty significant, and we'll be seeing just how significant the more we continue on. The third observation I want to make, before we start pulling some practical stuff out of this, that we make at verse 2, is that this motto is spoken by a wise man of Israel. Hmm. By a wise man. We argued in our introduction that this wise man adopted the persona of Solomon. A persona is an aspect of someone's character. And in this case, it would be Solomon's wisdom. The wise man does not pretend to be Solomon, but rather one who speaks in the wisdom tradition of Solomon. And he does this by describing his character as a Solomon-like figure, son of David, king in Jerusalem, wiser than all who have ever ruled Jerusalem before me. In other words... Mr. Wisdom, Mr. Wisdom is now speaking. Now let me say it, it doesn't matter, all right, I just want to be precise, but it doesn't matter whether you believe that the wise man is Solomon Solomon himself, or the wise man has adopted some of Solomon's work, or that the wise man really speaks in the tradition of Solomon. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. The inarguable fact is, however, that this person is a wise man. And that makes this particular motto all the more curious. If if this were not a sage, just some average person giving his opinion like Job's friends in the book of Job, well, we could dismiss it right away as Job did theirs. Right? We could argue that this sage wannabe is speaking nonsense and is obviously a disturbed individual. But this is not the case. No, this negative motto comes from a wise man of Israel, Mr. Wisdom himself, whom God's people respected. And beloved, if you and I respect biblical wisdom, then this wise man's declaration stops us right in our tracks because of how unusual it is, how out of place it sounds to our well-trained theological ears. A wise man whose writing has the status of divine inspiration and canonicity has just told us in no uncertain terms that life under the sun is the most transient, profitless, unknowable, and uncontrollable There is, and he repeats it for emphasis, just in case you missed it the first time around. Are we feeling strong yet? Confident, ready to face life, to conquer our world around us? What in the world are we supposed to do with this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's interpret this motto and understand its practical thrusts. I have three things I want to say about this, all right? This is really the crux of our message this morning. So you get to put your thinking cap on. First thing I want to say is this. This motto is a factual statement about life under the sun. It's factual. About life on earth. But life as it is lived by people who have no place for God of the Bible in it. All right? This motto focuses, it's factual, it's true, and it focuses on life under the sun lived by people who have no place for God in it at all. The late Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner suggests that the sage may have coined this phrase, futility of futilities, as the opposite to another superlative, holy of holies, In order to contrast two things, the utter emptiness of human existence without a relationship with God, on the one hand, and God's utter holiness that shaped the piety of the Israelite saints on the other. Having read and researched the rest of this book myself, I think Kidner is closer to the point, to the truth. The sages' motto is true, and it applies strictly to a secular existence, life that the rest of the Bible would explain as existing outside of a relationship, a covenant relationship with God. The New Testament uses the term world for this. It refers not to the physical creation, but to a satanic system run by the evil one, with doctrine that manifests itself in human philosophies and ideologies and worldviews, and to which the holiness and wisdom of God is completely foreign. As I mentioned last time, this motto evaluates life that is understood and lived purely from a secular vantage point. We know that the sage will bring in another vantage point, which is from the perspective of divine wisdom that comes through divine revelation that is sourced in God himself, God who lives above the sun. But he's not in a hurry to do this just yet. No, he wants us to dwell on what is true of a world system that has no concept of God, his sovereign working, and his goodness. He wants you to dwell on that. This is a sobering truth. It's life strictly confined to what is observable. Human observation of life is ground zero for those outside of a covenant relationship with God, it's their only frame of reference. Life limited to the realm of under the sun is a secular existence that makes moral judgments on the basis of human experience and and intuitive promptings. It's what the New Testament calls living by sight. Number two, having said that, there is no question then, no question, that this motto is meant to expose the desperate and depraved condition of human life under the sun. No question, it is meant to expose just how desperate and depraved human life is under the sun. To borrow from Kidner again, the word futility futility, futility, all is futility, becomes a desperate word in this context, a desperate word. It's a bitter word that the sage deliberately uses. Kidner's right. The idea that life and all that one produces in it is nothing but vaporous is meant to unsettle anyone whose lives, I'm sorry, who who lives, by an under-the-sun worldview, it's meant to unsettle them, to cause them to look at their desperate condition. Now, we know, of course, that this sage will conclude his work, if you've already looked at how the book ends, the end of the story, if you cheated, it's very different than the way he began it. His motto is not the final word. The motto in verse 2 is not the final word. He'll develop it for us. He'll bring in another half, if you will, and put it in its final form for those of us who have what we might call an above-the-sun worldview. You see, if there is life under the sun, well, that implies that there's also life above the sun. In fact, the sage will at times throughout his work glimpse this more informed view for us. For now, he focuses attention on futility of futility, a factual motto about life under the sun lived by those who have no place for God in it. Third and final thing I would like to say this brings us to the practical use of this motto this part of God's truth, and that's really the third part. This is the practical. How is this practical for us? What do we do with this? You might be wondering why would the sage do this in the first place? Why belabor the futility of life uh, so so as to cause those who live a life under the with a life under the sun worldview to be desperate? What benefit is it? Or is there to, to considering the futility of life under the sun that has no place for God in it. In light of the very positive way that the sage ends the book, I would say the answer to that question is to introduce those who operate strictly by an under-the-sun worldview to their need for a more informed worldview, one that captures eternal truths that lead to eternal life above the sun, and that can turn futility into eternal gain. That's why. As I say, the sage makes a value judgment with this motto on life under the sun for those who are bound to that realm. You see, a, a depraved and secular mind would not agree with the sages' motto. People in this world, uh, as we meet and we work with and we, we socialize with they, if they're outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're not going to agree to this motto, no matter how true it is. This is true of them, but they won't agree to it. It's, it they don't see it as, as accurate about their life under the sun as, as it is. It sounds too radical for them. As Kidner explains, quote, where the sage differs from them is in following such trains of thought much further than they would care to take them. Path after path will be relentlessly explored to the very point at which it comes to nothing. In the end, only one way will be left, end quote. The only one way that Kidner refers to is, of course, life that is governed by an above-the-sun worldview. Now, if we can show people just how desperate a godless life under the sun really is, they may be open to receiving words of hope. So his motto is a perfect starting point. He begins this way with his son, Remember? There's no way of knowing whether his son was a true believer in Yahweh, in Messiah. No, we, we know nothing about his son. The most we can say is that he was at least old enough to understand his father's teaching. And if he wasn't a believer yet, the best thing the sage could do for his son is to trace for him a godless life under the sun to its logical conclusion. You see? Show his son the utter futility of a human of, a, of an under the sun worldview, and beloved, you and I must also prepare to do the same thing with those who have no saving relationship with Christ. Help those under the sun to see that their vantage point, their worldview is tied to this world system, grounded in the satanic lie that we can be masters of our own destiny without God, a lie that governs depraved humanity all over the world. We have to show them this. Ecclesiastes is a perfect example of how to battle for the minds of men and women in a spiritual war and destroy the fortresses of their ideologies the sage does what Paul calls us to do in Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Destroy arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God so that we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. To put that another way, the sage eventually wants to introduce his son to an above the sun worldview that will help him to make sense of life's absurdities But to do that, he must begin by showing him the utter futility of an under the sun worldview. You gotta know the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. That sound familiar? So it's important that we also begin here with this motto of futility that accurately captures life under the sun with no room for God of the Bible in it, especially since, as we have noted, unbelievers don't see life this way, nor do they want to. They don't want to. No one wants to be dwelling on this. Otherwise, there would be websites like the Adams family style motto.com, right? Just remember, their denial, though, of this motto of futility doesn't make it any less accurate or true we have to take our cue from the sage and spend time showing godless people the logical conclusion to their personal paths of life. Help them arrive at futility so that we can reveal the only way of hope open to them. If you're convinced of this, as I hope you are, then let me warn you that bringing people to this point of despair is not complicated, but it is by no means easy. We have our work cut out for us. Remember, the evil one has blinded the eyes of those under the sun with counterfeit light. They are deceived. They don't want to embrace their particular world. They, They don't want to embrace, I'm sorry, the above the sun worldview. And they don't embrace their own particular worldviews for nothing. Worldviews empower people instill them with confidence, justify their lifestyle, confirm their sense of right and wrong. It's their epistemology. People's under-the-sun worldviews represent their very best attempts to make sense of the absurdity of life. And people don't take kindly to you poking holes in their worldviews. They're liable to get nasty. In addition to that, they can well, point to many lifestyles that would seem to to them, anyway, to contradict the sages' motto of futility, like the lifestyles of the rich and famous, which lend credence to their belief that there's a better life out there under the sun without God in it. Isn't that why people emigrate to America? To make a better life? Well, to those who have as their frame of reference only that which is observable that is living by sight these seeming expectations to the ru- I'm sorry exceptions to the rule make for a, a sound argument so how can how can you deny life of the elites how would we answer this how would we confront this See, these elites are above the law. They have their own protection. They have the best medical care, first rate travel conditions, first dibs on stock trading and so on. What it must be like to be Paul McCartney, to have lived a fairy tale life, right? Neil Diamond wrote a song about his rise to fame many years ago in a song called I Am I Said. And it's interesting that in the second stanza, he puts his rise to fame and fortune that he attributes to some magical twist of fate, back to back with the reality that life at the top for him is very lonely. This is how it goes. Did you ever read about a frog who dreamed of being a king and then became one? Well, except for the names and a few other changes, if you talk about me, the story is the same one. He continues... But I got an emptiness deep inside, and I've tried, but it won't let me go. I'm not a man who likes to swear, but I never cared for the sound of being alone. Hmm. Diamond glimpse, glimpses a bit of reality here, as much as those who never tasted of the so-called good life might find it hard to accept. He's, here's more reality lest you think that the famous have somehow beaten the odds or outsmarted fate, as they might say, or were just extremely lucky, again, their words, to have dodged life's average negative circumstances that enslave most and somehow manage to leapfrog from one positive lily pad of life to the next without falling into the pond waters of struggle that most of us will tread for the rest of our lives, here's something you should consider. The lives of the rich and famous are not immune to disease, accidents, attacks by the odd rabid coyote, allergic reactions to bee stings, air pollution, or nasty divorce proceedings, to name a few. More than this, life at the top is not devoid of painful and wearying situations. It has, actually, it has them magnified tenfold. And some are even uniquely tragic. You're subject to higher tax brackets. You live in an unavoidable public lifestyle in the public eye all the time, always being chased by photographers. And fame is a tough road ho, tougher than you might imagine. Fans are fickle, and there are plenty of young upstarts ready to replace you. The sage himself was rich, and he testified to its futility. We'll see it later on. Whether you belong to the haves or the have-nots, you have to struggle throughout life. Either you fight to have more or fight to keep the more you have. Both groups have their own problems under the sun. Someone from the have-nots corner is likely to say, well, if the rich and the poor both suffer, I'd rather suffer with much than little. Oh, really? Do you think that you can suffer better losing much and winding up with little than those who suffer with little to begin with? And the response from the sage, of course, to end all discussions and prove the veracity of his motto of futility is this. Everyone ends up in the same place anyway, the grave. And there's not one thing that anyone can do to escape that. Death is the great equalizer. It is not a respecter of persons And someday it will come for you. And when it does, you go out of this world quite alone, just the way you came in. You take nothing with you. And you cannot control what happens to your worldly possessions after you're gone, which is a lot harder to deal with for the haves than the have-nots. This is why the sage's motto is an accurate description of life under the sun for those who operate by an under-the-sun worldview. I remember when my Italian grandmother died. Even though she was 90, it still caught us a bit off guard. She died within six months of being misdiagnosed, a sad consequence of life under the sun. The day, she, the day after she was interred, we had to quickly return to her small apartment in Quincy and clear it out. Whatever few belongings there were, had to go. What we couldn't take, we had to throw out. That was hard. Losing her the way that we did was hard enough. She was very spry and independent, uh, 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 90-year-old, but... Now being forced to clear out what for, for so many years was to us her home, for some stranger to move in the next day before the sweet aroma of spaghetti sauce had dissipated was tough. The whole experience for me screamed of a transitory nature of life. It did. I was a lot younger then, and it still screamed to me of that, especially when we had to throw away everything we couldn't take of her belongings in the dumpster behind the complex. That even sounds harsh. I stood there for a moment with my dad, looking at this pile of stuff the only visible, tangible proof that she was once a real person who shared our air. This picture prompted him to say, I'll never forget, Here's a woman who came from Italy, barely spoke English, married, raised a family, worked hard all her life to support them, and then her grandkids. And for what? Eventually to die? To be misdiagnosed? To have her belongings thrown in the trash? Hmm. I remember thinking of how unfair and cruel life can be, and, and that even a memory of this dear woman, somewhat of a matriarch in the family, would soon be lost on the second or third generation. Of course, his observation was true only for those who are limited to an under the sun view, right? It was, it was a truth that we struggled with for a brief moment, I must say, just as the sage struggled. But we weren't among those bound by an under-the-sun worldview. No, we were able to interpret all that we could with the eyes of faith, you see, with an above-the-sun lens, and even be encouraged that Though the tide of history would eventually wash away any trace of her footsteps on the shores of life, her name was written in the Book of Life. Her faith became sight that day, and she came to know the great gain in Christ that accompanied the salvation of her soul. The motto in Ecclesiastes 1-2 accurately describes life under the sun for those whose worldview is limited to what they can see and observe. If they remain bound to it, they will die in their sins. That's why this motto is a great starting point for evangelism. By presenting them with the worst possible news there is, we prepare them to hear the greatest possible news there is. Of course, for Christians, being reminded of the worst possible news causes us to rejoice all the more in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has delivered us from the absurdity of a sin-cursed world, from bondage to our depravity, and as Ecclesiastes will develop in time from God's coming judgment. I want to close our time out by saying that the New Testament presents the same two vantage points of life that Ecclesiastes does, the the under-the-sun worldview and the the above-the-sun worldview, and for the same purposes. Perhaps the classic passage is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul makes the argument that everything Jesus taught, all the covenant promises about his work of redemption and the resurrection of every believer to life everlasting, hinged. On one event in human history, the resurrection of Christ. He makes this this bold statement in verse thirty-two: "If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." The conclusion is plain enough. With no hope of eternal life, the, the the life under the sun is all one knows and is all there is. It's a cruel existence where they are subject to chance happenings and random twists of circumstances and uncertainties and no real rhyme or reason as to why they even exist and where reputations are soon forgotten by future generations. Life starts out as a spark. It fans into flame and burns brightly for a short time before its heat and brilliance are extinguished by death, which is as offensive to those who live with an under-the-sun worldview as the stench from a smoking candle wick whose flame is snuffed out by a two-finger pinch. So Offensive that they would deny life as it really is, absurd and futile, fleeting, unmanageable and uncontrollable, and redefine it falsely, believing in a fantasy world and grabbing as much of life as they possibly can. With the full backing of Ecclesiastes, that will counter this bad news of futility under the sun, the good news of eternal life that comes from above the sun, we may ask any of them that put, puts in that God puts in our path. we might ask them Jesus' penetrating question that no doubt sums up the message of the book of Ecclesiastes well. And that is this: What does it benefit? If a person, uh, benefit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul.